Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and Josh, for the rest of this episode, you will address me as General or Sir. Yes, sir. Sir, yes, sir. <laughs> or Sir General, Surgeon General, General Sir. <laughs> I don't know. Anything Anything that makes me sound impressive. Mm -hmm. Nah, we have no respect for authority here at Awesome Movie Year, but we do have respect for the Awesome Movie Year of 1992, which we have just done a whole season, depending on when you're listening to this. If you're listening on Patreon, we have just finished our season on the films of 1992. If you're listening to this later, we finished it at some time in the past. But either way, we wanted to do this bonus episode for another movie from 1992 because it had been in such high demand. And so we are going to talk about A Few Good Men from Awesome Movie Year's favorite director, Rob Reiner. Yeah, stick it to Dame. He can try to shove Peter Jackson down our throats all he wants, but Rob Reiner is the official director of Awesome Movie Year. Oh, yeah. Yes, although I was, I was wrong. I think I said in our 92 epilogue that this would put Rob Reiner in the lead again with four episodes, but that is not true because we had talked about doing an episode on Spinal Tap in our 1984 season, but we didn't actually do it. So this merely ties Rob Reiner with Peter Jackson and Martin Scorsese for the director most discussed on Awesome Movie Year. Wow. So we can't quite stick it to Dave yet. Don't worry, soon enough we'll get to the story of us and then, and then we'll be <laughs> right there. So. Yes, indeed. But uh, this movie, the reason that we decided to do this bonus episode on this particular movie is because at the beginning of the season, as we always do, we posted on our social media asking people what some of their favorite films were from 1992. And we got a huge response, which was great. And we appreciate all of that feedback. We talked about a lot of it in our epilogue episode. But the one movie that was most mentioned by people among their 1992 favorites was A Few Good Men. So we thought we might as well watch this movie and share our thoughts on it. So that is what we are doing in this episode. You know, Josh, we're nothing if not givers. And uh, <laughs> no, we love all the feedback and we want to, you know, we want to definitely cover movies that you guys want to hear. So like this is a great pick anyway, because it's so uh, important of a film to 1992. So I think I think it's a, a great bonus episode. And uh Really, we all are winners today. We are. We are indeed. And and certainly this is a movie that when we were planning our 1992 season came up as as a potential option. And of course, the Rob Reiner factor was key. In, in, in this <laughs> That's the only reason. Not the fact that it was critically acclaimed. It had people like Sorkin and Jack Nicholson, Tom uh, Cruise. It was just a, a straight Reiner, baby. It's mm -hmm. Reiner. It's all Reiner. Yeah. So, um, this movie was very successful. I mean, it's not surprising that people would name it as one of their favorites still because it was a big deal when it came out. It was a huge hit at the box office. It grossed $243.2 million worldwide on its budget of Wikipedia says between 33 and 40 million. Um, so regardless of which number that is, it's still hugely successful. It was nominated for four Oscars. And I know we brought it up a bunch of times during the season, whenever we mentioned what else was nominated for Oscars in various categories versus movies that we were talking about. It was nominated for best picture, best supporting actor for Jack Nicholson, 
best film editing and best sound mixing, although it did not win any of those awards. It was also nominated at the Golden Globes for five awards, including Best Picture Drama, Best Supporting Actor for Jack Nicholson, Best Lead Actor in a Drama for Tom Cruise, Best Screenplay, and Best Director. It did not win any of those awards either, but it was certainly one of the big awards season movies of 1992. This was the only movie that was nominated for Best Picture in 1992 that did not win any other Academy Awards. And I was sort of, I, you know, I should have looked up who actually won Best Supporting Actor, but I had just kind of assumed that Nicholson oh, you know, won. We, we know who won. We covered it. It's uh, Gene Hackman oh, okay. as uh, Little Bill in uh, Unforgiven. Yeah, we did cover that. And that is a much deserved win. But I guess I had already forgotten about that because it was several weeks ago. So yeah. come on. You got, you got things. You got, you know, yeah. you got to watch Hellraiser movies and uh, Amityville horror movies and all your wacky article movies, Josh. I, I do have to watch many Sharknado movies and... for for articles, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think just just in a general sense because this is such an iconic performance from Nicholson, and especially the iconic delivery of the uh, "You can't handle the truth" line. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> exactly like that. <laughs> How could that not have won an Oscar right there? I so, want my Oscar for yes. imitating. But you know, Josh, I was looking this up too, and the two I were looking up because you know. We know it's always a big deal when something gets nominated for uh, Best Picture, but does not get nominated for director. And we mm. talked about the director Eastwood won, Martin Brest for Scent of a Woman, Neil Jordan, James Ivory, and Robert Altman, who we covered for the the player. So I mean, I I there, I've seen three of those movies. I can't fault those nominees. So the one that surprised me though, and I was looking at it was because I think this is, might be you know this is as good as Tom Cruise. Like as I think this is like one of his best performances. So I yeah. think he's the one who really got robbed here. You know, we know Pacino won. I think Robert Downey Jr. uh for Chaplin deserved to be in there. Stephen Ray, the crying game. We haven't seen Malcolm X, Denzel Washington. He's got to be in there. I would have taken out Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven. They can win all huh. the other awards, and I would have put Tom Cruise in for uh for that right there. Yeah, I mean, Clint Eastwood is great and unforgiven. Um, maybe he's not as great as Gene Hackman is in that movie, but all of the performances are are really good in there. I haven't seen Chaplin, and I've seen The Crying Game. It's been a while, but I don't remember necessarily if Stephen Ray was so amazing in that film that that he outshines some of those other performers. But this is definitely one of Cruz's best performances, and the Golden Globes, obviously. They picked him, they nominated him, but of course they nominate more people because they have the two separate genre categories for acting. So they're able to add people to that list. What I just learned is you do not know all there is to know about the crying game. <laughs> the crying game. Okay. Mm. <laughs> so in addition to being nominated for all these awards and making a lot of money at the box office, it was generally critically acclaimed. Uh, it was also, again, I, you know, one of these best picture nominees. A lot of the times we have these award nominees that aren't audience pleasing films necessarily. But this movie got an A plus from CinemaScore, the audience polling service, which is extremely rare. Um, you know, it represents like real huge enthusiasm from the people who went to see it first. And critics were generally into it as well. Although I was sort of surprised to see that Siskel and Ebert 
split on it. It got a thumbs up from Siskel and a thumbs down from Ebert. And even Siskel wasn't super enthused. And I think one of the things that a lot of the critics said is that even if they're positive and they found the movie entertaining, that it is kind of predictable and old fashioned. And Siskel thought it was enjoyable on enough levels that he gave it a thumbs up. But Ebert, even though he praised the performances, he had a real problem. And and he he really harps on this in his review, but I didn't quote it because it seems super nitpicky and he just goes on and on and on about it. But his his primary and seemingly at times only problem with this movie was the idea that late in the film, Tom Cruise's character, who's a lawyer defending these two Marines who are on trial for murder, and he's trying to do this gotcha moment in court, right, with Jack Nicholson's character, the colonel, who he believes is really responsible. And that's when we get the big, you can't handle the truth speech. And so before that, he and his fellow lawyers played by Demi Moore and Kevin Pollack discuss the strategy. And he says, here's what I'm going to do when I have the colonel on the stand. And then he does it. And Ebert thought that this was just a huge misstep. The idea that we know beforehand his strategy and he's told us what he's going to do and then he does it and it happens. And this is like half of Ebert's review is just Mm. complaining about this, which seems to have ruined the entire film for him. And he talks about it with Siskel like the whole time as well. Ah, interesting. So, I mean, you know, I remember in Unforgiven, they weren't too hot on that. So this, you know, we consider this like a great, great year for movies, obviously, And what you're seeing is a lot of these Best Picture nominees were big hits, uh, well, well regarded by audiences and reviewers. But your boys, Siskel and Ebert, Josh, just wet noodling the whole year. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I certainly came up with Unforgiven and I don't I don't remember what they said about the other ones or if we've talked about that particularly. But yeah, this is a very, very crowd pleasing kind of film. And and I don't know that they were necessarily opposed to that. But I think Ebert, for whatever reason, thought that that particular moment undermined, in a way, maybe the rousing uh, excitement of it because you have been spoiled for the moment that is the most crowd-pleasing. And I don't agree with him, but it was just interesting to see how fixated he was on this. Yeah, I want to comment on that because, you know, Aaron Sorkin, we know, wrote this script. It was a play. It was a hit on, you know, Broadway. This was kind of the thing that launched him and everything. And then William Goldman, the legendary screenwriter, did an uncredited rewrite. And Sorkin said his changes were so good that he made changes to the script on Broadway based on them. And I think this was one of those Goldman style changes. I'm not I can't say that for certain, but I think it was. And I think he he had to say it. I don't know if we would have understood how he got the colonel if we didn't know the motivation, what he was trying to do without kind of. Uh, telling you know, telling us the play before he 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 ran it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a problem. I think that if they had not done that, it would have been okay. There's a moment where he sort of hesitates, and before they get the colonel on the stand, there's a moment with Demi Moore's character where she says, "If you can't get him, don't do it," because the idea is that if you accuse this colonel of this misconduct and you can't prove it then you are going to be on a court martial, that that is an illegal thing to do in the military. Yeah. 
And All this stuff, Josh, is like these military guys are like, ooh, we're so sensitive. Don't tell us we did anything wrong ever. And it's like, you know, stop being such babies. You talk about how you have to defend the world and fight for freedom. But you're like, oh, you have all the freedom in the world as long as you don't say I did something wrong. A few good babies was the rejected <laughs> mm-hmm. title for this film. Um, but but there's a moment then before he really tears into him that he kind of hesitates and he you know, is like shaking, trying to drink this water or whatever. And I suppose if we didn't know for sure what exactly he was going to do there, there could be a little more suspense or a little more anticipation, like how is he going to pull this off? And that might that might have been OK. So I feel like it, it would have been fine to do what Ebert wants. But I don't think that the way that it is like ruins the movie. So it it just it just seemed like a strange thing to harp on. Well, what we've only seen the colonel in, you know, he's only in four scenes in the entire film, right? Yes. So I don't know if we had an I mean, we know he's got an ego, but I think it needed to be reinforced that they were playing to that because we don't have enough information that that tactic would work based on that because he's in it just for uh so little of the film. I kind of think that's why they had to do that and everything. Yeah, and I I think it's fine, and we don't need to spend as much time uh, on this as Ebert did. But I just thought it was sort of interesting the things that the critics decide are uh, are deal breakers, so to speak. Um, so I, elsewhere in his review, more generally about the film, he said Rob Reiner's A Few Good Men is one of those movies that tells you what it's going to do, does it, and then tells you what it did. It doesn't think the audience is very bright. That's a shame because in many ways this is a good film with the potential to be even better than that. The flaws are mostly at the screenplay level. The film doesn't make us work, doesn't allow us to figure out things for ourselves, is afraid we'll miss things if they're not spelled out. The movie is reduced, then, to a lesser pleasure, that of watching good actors do good work. Well, I enjoyed the actors doing good work. So Right. Um, <laughs> I, did, I did, too. And I think this is the thing that Siskel points out, where he's also kind of critical of the screenplay or the structure, but he's just saying every it was it was enjoyable to watch it play out. I mean, on the flip side, isn't it worse when you know you don't get the information and then when the reveals happen, you're like, what? That's what this all was? Like, and it just doesn't come together. So uh I, I'm gonna err on the side of the audience, the A plus guys. I'm not giving it an A plus, but it's a it's a better movie than what he's saying, I think. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, and I think it's also funny. This, of course, is Aaron Sorkin's uh, debut as a screenwriter. And I, knowing what we know now, the idea that an Aaron Sorkin movie might very explicitly tell you <laughs> what's going on and sort of lead the audience in a, in a somewhat didactic way to the point that it's trying to make is not a surprise anymore if you watch an Aaron Sorkin movie. But if you'd never seen one before, maybe. It's uh, it's it's surprising. Yeah, I mean, but that's his style, and that's fine. Yes. That's his style. So. That is his style. Yes, but of course, they didn't really know that at this time. So other critics were more positive, although again, they they often talk about how hokey this movie is. Todd McCarthy in Variety said, "A Few Good Men is a big time mainstream Hollywood movie par excellence. It's got all the elements for across the board's acceptance. Juicy parts for some of the top stars in the business." a Broadway pedigree, a riveting David versus Goliath courtroom battle, serious attitudes that won't threaten or offend anyone, and skilled filmmaking hands at the top of their game. Mass audiences will eat up this expose of peacetime military malfeasance 
laced with the story of a bright young lawyer's struggle to get out from under the imposing shadow of an illustrious father. Expert story construction and compelling thesping and direction make all the narrative elements pay off as if calculated by a precision instrument in which all the parts are working perfectly. And, what a uh, boring thes- review. Thesping <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, is, is Variety's word for acting. So. Yeah. Well, Rob Reiner did say he could relate to the Tom Cruise character where they're talking about being in the shadows of a giant father because, as we all know, Carl Reiner, the mm. legendary comedian, actor, director, writer, uh, comic personality is Rob Reiner's father. So Yes, yes, he is. So, I, I mean, I, I am sympathetic to this viewpoint, though. I enjoyed this movie, but I it's extraordinarily cheesy. And... But that's t- probably why the audience loves it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's a very, very crowd-pleasing kind of film. And it's the kind of movie almost, or at least for me, where you're like, it got me, and I kind of resent it for having gotten me. <laughs> so that's how I felt about Forrest Gump when we had that episode. Uh, the, you know, I liked it when I first saw it. And then when I watched it this time, I was like, man, ah, oh, you keep getting me here. So, but um, <laughs> But I, I, I didn't mind it. I like courtroom dramas. I think they're a tough genre to pull off. Um, so when I see a good one, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Yeah, and I enjoyed this way more than Forrest Gump, which, as we talked about in that episode, I, I kind of loathe. But this was a movie where I, I think with Forrest Gump, it was like, it's trying to get me and I hate it for it. Right. And this, this movie, I mostly went along. There were a few moments where I was like, all right, this is too much. You lost me. But like where? Well, I mean, especially the very end where they've, you know, spoiler alert, they've sort of mostly triumphed in court. They've at least proved that the Colonel Jack Nicholson was responsible, although these Marines are now going to be dishonorably discharged, which they're very unhappy about. But still, Tom Cruise, uh, Caffey has earned the respect of his clients, which has been sort of the the theme throughout the film that they don't respect him because he's not he doesn't take the military seriously and whatever and he gets the salute from the one marine who was really the one who was focused on the code of honor and everything and the music swells and the guy stops in the middle of the courtroom and he salutes tom cruise and i was just like come on and then the camera pulls back and i swear i don't know how many movies in by 1992 had a big the end on the screen at the end of the movie, but it's just, it was just the hokiest possible way to end it. And, and to me, it was like, come on, really? We, we, we got it. We already understood what was happening here. You had to really just like hammer that home. But I think there were probably other moments in the movie as well. Big speechy type moments that maybe were too much, but overall I did enjoy this. movie. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, Sorkinese, right? So, um, you know, I will say about that. It was an earned moment. You know, he did earn the respect I thought. Um, but I know what you're saying. When Cruz is looking around at the courtroom, you wanted him to raise his fist in the air like Judd Nelson at the end of The Breakfast Club. Of course. That's absolutely <laughs> what I wanted. That's an end. Every movie should end that way. Uh, I wouldn't be against that. If, you know, instead of writing the end, if you had to do a freeze frame of your lead actor or an actor, you know, um, yeah. d- doing a fist, a triumphant fist in the air, I'm okay with that. Yeah, of course. So Kenneth Turan in the LA Times had some similar thoughts. He said, a brisk and familiar courtroom drama of the old school. As brisk. Pleasant- brisk. 
Uh, no, <laughs> you're already wrong, Kenneth Turan. <laughs> so, All right. two, a brisk two hour and 18 minutes. Come on, dude. You know, well, well, well let, let me get through the whole thing and then we can address that concern. Uh, <laughs> he said a brisk and familiar courtroom drama of the old school as pleasant to watch as it is predictable. A few good men more than anything else is a tribute to pure star power. An assured reminder of the days when actors played by the rules and didn't hesitate to do the things audiences like to see them doing. Yet director Rob Reiner has more than enough professionalism at his command, as well as a shrewd feel for the mechanics of mass entertainment to involve us in his tale. Though it would be a mistake to get too excited over what, for all its grand designs, remains an uncomplicated piece of entertainment, simple pleasures like these are getting harder and harder to find. Okay, go for it. Brisk. <laughs> you didn't find this movie brisk? No, it's not brisk at all, but that's fine. But Josh, what about, um, you know, because I agree. I think like the big actors are at their best, including Demi Moore. I think like this is the best maybe she's ever been in anything, you know. Um, yeah. But that Marine that you mentioned, he was kind of, I know they cast him because he was like, Rob Reiner's assistant and location manager. Uh, I didn't really think he brought much to the table. I, did, I thought well, his name's Wolfgang Bodison. I thought like he did not live up to the level of the rest of them. Yeah, I thought both of the Marines, the other actor, James Marshall, who plays the other one, the, the two Marines accused of murder. I thought both of them were pretty weak. And I, it is weird because that actor you mentioned, Wolfgang Bodison, was... Yeah, part of the crew and Reiner saw something in him or whatever and had he him liked audition. his look. Yeah. And everything. And so it was like, wow, this guy has it. We're going to have to cast him. And whatever it was that he had, I don't think it came across on screen. I, I agree with you. They were kind of a weak link. There. Well, Josh, and it's interesting because I'm wondering if uh, Dawson. Uh, well, that's Dawson and James Marshall played Downey. The Downey character, I think, was part of that was the way it was written. There really was. Uh, I mean, they just wrote him as adult. A simpleton who like really was basically um, functioning at the lowest level of, without needing supervision, right? Yeah, I thought that was a very strange characterization. And watching this movie, I thought, is this guy supposed to be like actually mentally disabled in some way? Because he was so dim-witted and so unable to understand some of the basic parameters of what was happening to him that it seemed like it went beyond just this guy is a little dazed. I agree. Or whatever. Yeah. And 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 I mean, that that is the writing. I think part of it is the performance and maybe the way that it's written. A different actor could have gotten a handle on that character better and made the audience understand it better. But yeah, I think both of those characters in a weird way are a weak link. And, and they're like the central part of the story, but they're not the main characters. So they're overpowered, long, though. Yeah. Well, we have long stretches where we don't see them. You know, they're being talked about because the case is about them. But they're not the characters that we as the audience are following. We're watching the lawyers. And so they're not on screen that much. But when they are, I think it definitely holds things back. Rob Reiner of James Marshall compared him to James Dean as a natural. Mm. All right. Well, whatever. Um, I just want to qu uh, quickly uh, disagree with you, though, about the briskness of this film. It is long, but to me, it didn't feel like it dragged or that it went on too long. It felt snappy and it always moved pretty quickly from one thing to another. And I don't know if it was later in that LA Times review or it might have been in the Variety review, but one of the reviews that I read specifically said, this movie is long, but it never feels like it's too long. And, and that was kind of how I felt. I 
generally am down on long movies. I always am excited when movies are 85 minutes long, but I, I didn't feel like this was too long or that it needed to be uh, trimmed. I, I'm not saying that it was bloated. I'm just saying I don't think anything at two hours and 18 minutes is brisk. I mean, it, the pacing moved. I think that's all that he means, but uh, maybe that's uh, that's not it, though. So, uh did you see this in 1992, Jason? No, Josh. I saw it this weekend right before we recorded. I've never seen this movie up until this point. So thank you to our loyal listeners. Yes, and thank you for me as well, because I had also never seen it. I what? Don't <laughs> I don't know why, because I loved Aaron Sorkin later in the 90s. I was a huge fan of The West Wing, and it's not like this was an obscure movie. I'm sure I could have watched it at any time. But I don't know, for whatever reason, I, I did not. And I had not watched it until until this week. I actually even wrote like a couple months ago when Top Gun Maverick came out, a whole piece on Tom Cruise's best movies and had not gotten the chance to see this even then. Mm. So uh, I'm glad that I did. Well, Josh, here's one of the many fun facts I uncovered while researching oh. this film. Daniel Caffey, Tom Cruise's uh character is a lieutenant junior grade this is one rank below the previous navy officer uh whom he portrayed in top gun which of mm. course now in maverick i think he even moved above that also in the film joanne galloway demi moore is a lieutenant commander this is one rank higher than the next navy officer whom she portrayed lieutenant jordan o'neill in gi jane I'm now imagining a Navy that is solely composed of Tom Cruise and Demi Moore at various ranks. Ah, what a white Navy you have imagined. <laughs> yeah, but an attractive one. Yeah. 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 Good, good looking. Uh, Dave, had you seen this before? Yeah, I couldn't remember. This is one of those movies we talk about this a lot where it's like it's been, you know, you see these scenes so many times. It's like you can't remember. Did I actually see it or do I just know the scenes? Uh, so I'm going to go with no, just so I can be like you guys. Oh, that's one. <laughs> he wants to belong. Yes. That's sweet. Hmm. Thanks. That is nice. So. Any more fun facts that you wanted to share on this, on the background of this? Here's two fun facts, Josh. One that's fun and one that's uh, abominable and not fun at all. Hmm. Uh, the first fun fact is that Aaron Sorkin wrote this play while he was bartending, I think, at La Caja Fa at the Palace Theater on uh, Broadway. Uh, which I thought was really cool. He said you had to work when people were walking in and at intermission. But other than that, it was basically downtime. And he wrote the whole thing on like bar napkins. So uh, that's that's pretty good when you're not doing anything during the first second. There's an unlimited supply of cocktail napkins, he said. However, going back to uh, the, shall we say, genius of uh, Hollywood executives uh, throughout the years, an unnamed executive once gave Aaron Sorkin this note. If Tom Cruise and Demi Moore aren't going to sleep together, why is Demi Moore a woman? Mm, oh boy. That is yeah. a question to ask. And and actually, maybe we'll talk, get into this more, but something that Ebert also kind of says that Siskel says it's refreshing that the Tom Cruise and Demi Moore characters don't sleep together. And I agree. I was like waiting for this terrible love story to show up in this film and it doesn't at all. And and I, I appreciated that. And it gives it, it doesn't reduce Demi Moore's character to like a love interest. And Ebert then complained that he assumed that because they don't 
kind of do that, that the Demi Moore character must have been originally written as a man and changed when they cast her and not rewritten in any way, which is not true. And if he were familiar with the play, he would know that that character was written as a woman. And there are lines that reference, I mean, there's a whole speech basically from Jack Nicholson's character that's this like horrible sexist speech about how he loves sleeping with women who are his getting uh, getting blowjobs from higher ranking officers. Right, exactly. So it's not like the movie doesn't realize that this is a female character. So yeah. another, another misguided thing from Ebert there. And, and I personally agreed with Siskel. I thought one of the refreshing things was the way that they treat that relationship between Tom Cruise and Demi Moore in this film. And don't do the expected thing. One of the few things in this movie that is not predictable is the way that that relationship plays out. Now, Josh, as a man who is for a quality here, I uh, support getting blowjobs from women of any rank, uh, of any stature, you know, as long as it's consensual. Well, I'm glad we got that in the podcast. <laughs> and we'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on A Few Good Men. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special bonus episode for our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about Rob Reiner's courtroom drama, A Few Good Men. And we, we've said a lot about this movie already, but Jason, I get the sense that you like this maybe a little more than I did. So do you, do you want to just, what is your favorite thing about this film? Uh, I think it's that scene, you know, that we've talked about in that whole 20 minute courtroom scene with uh, Cruz against Nicholson. I watched that. I was watching the movie and I finished the scene. And before I watched the ending, I was like, I'm watching this scene again. That scene's really good. Like two men uh, and all the performers, but two actors are really at the top of their craft at that scene. And uh, I think Sorkin's dialogue is uh, befitting of it there. And the direction's good, but really, that's a showcase for those two actors. It is. And I think it's one of those things, especially that big, you can't handle the truth line that is so iconic and so extensively parodied and quoted that it loses a bit of impact if you're watching it for the first time now. But it certainly is quite the showdown. And for me, at least, Nicholson is going to town so much in this movie. And he's only in, as you said, Jason, like three scenes. And he's clearly just like, I am going to dominate these scenes when he shows up on set. I, to me, it was almost too much. And I'm going to disagree with you 100% there, Josh. We covered Nicholson, you know, when he really hammed it up, as he should, as the Joker and Batman. Here, he was in four scenes. The character was a larger-than-life military general who dealt with the prospect of death every single day and was ascending to become one of these huge politicians. So, of course, he's going to have this huge ego. He already commands a huge number of people, and he believes that under his command, he's saving lives. And he probably is saving lives a lot of the time. So I disagree with you. I actually think like he didn't go over the top with it. And Josh, again, while doing my research... Uh, he said that they said that Jack Nicholson, uh, in that scene would, they shot him last, but he was there for every single take and gave readings like real readings, um, to each character, uh, while they were kind of doing the coverage on all the other actors, which, you know, that's the right thing to do as an actor, but with such a huge scene, 
you would probably want to be like, I want to, I want the camera on me now so I can get out what I need to get out. But so that's a very giving thing that he did. Yeah. And I'm not saying that Jack Nicholson is like a bad actor or that he was not respecting his colleagues or something, but I think he's giving a very, very big performance and maybe like when he played the Joker, you're right. And then he it calls for it because that's what this character is. It certainly is a character with a huge ego. That's the point. But I felt like maybe the way that it's written or maybe the way that it's directed and the way that it's acted, maybe it all adds up to a character where it sort of felt like this is almost the Joker showing up in the middle of this semi-realistic courtroom drama. I don't know where you're getting that. It's not like, you know, like I'll take The Departed as an example where he really goes in and he's like, you know, which, you know, there are real characters like that. I just disagree with you on this performance completely. All right. Well, I mean, I don't think it took me out of the film necessarily, but it, it felt like a performance that's like, we're going to get an Oscar for this. And not to blame him necessarily. I'm sure he did exactly what they wanted from him. But I don't know. It, it just I, I didn't mean, entirely work for me. No, no man has been nominated more for an Oscar than Jack Nicholson. So I don't think he needs to try to get those nominations. He's that good of an actor. He's nominated 12 times. He's the, there's only two actors who have been nominated every decade from the 60s through the 2000s. Do you know who the other one is? Meryl Streep? Well, Meryl Streep's always nominated, but I don't think she was around in the 60s. Oh, yeah, you're right. She wasn't probably. It, it's a 60s. male actor. Okay, just tell me. I don't want to play a guessing game. Well, Josh, you're wrong. It wasn't Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> um, Maybe Michael, if you add Freddie Prince Jr. and Freddie Prince Sr. You still wouldn't be there. Uh, it, it was Michael Caine, which, oh, is an inter- right. which is interesting. But I just disagree. I mean, if you watch enough of his filmography, I think he gives honest takes on the characters that he's doing. So I just, uh, I'm just, i uh, just not in agreement with you on this one all at right, all. All right. So, I mean, I did enjoy watching him because he's chewing so much scenery. It is fun to watch. I don't think he's doing that. I'm going to just, I'm going to hold you off right there, bucko. You are slandering Jack Nicholson and I will not have it. And I mean, I I feel like I'm not slandering Nicholson because again, I think he's doing exactly what he's been hired to do. I just think that it is a lot and, and it's enjoyable. Like he's got that ginormous cigar in the scenes when they go see him in Guantanamo Bay, when they travel to Cuba to kind of investigate the incident and they're talking to him like that and he's so smug and he's so condescending and that's the character that's what he's supposed to be playing but again it feels like they've gone to meet a supervillain, and it's fun to watch that but it doesn't exactly make me feel like this movie is a serious realistic portrayal of military life all right well i mean you know to give you a little a little um just a little credit, Josh, you know, Sorkin, you know, does combine humor. There's a lot of humor in this film. And I think he looks for levity in those moments, too. So I, I don't agree with you, but uh, but I'll just get off your back because we're friends. All right. Well, we can move on to talking about something. Else. Did you did you do you agree with me that this is a probably, you know, I think this is as good a Tom Cruise performance and Demi Moore as there is out there. there and there Kevin Pollack. Kevin, but they're all no, they're all very good, and, and I think Bacon. that's one of the reasons why the the two Marines stand out is because the, everyone else in this cast is so good, and there's tons of character actors and small parts here who do good good work, and so when those Marines start talking and it's kind of halting and stilted, and you're like, oh, what are these guys doing in this film? 
So I, I agree with you. They're all very good. I mean, like I said, I, I you know, just not that long ago, wrote a, a whole list of 10 Tom Cruise performances that I think are great. And so I think he's given a lot of great performances, but this is certainly up there with some of his best work. And um, I, I know this this immediately, I've never seen this, but this immediately followed Far and Away, which was a kind of notoriously bad Tom Cruise movie where he and Nicole Kidman played Irish immigrants and did terrible accents. And it was uh, kind of a, a critical hey, failure. Don't do the Irish accent if you can't do it. Right. They probably <laughs> sounded around like that. And I, I haven't seen that movie, but but it was mentioned in at least one review that I saw because it came out the same year, probably just a few months earlier. And so this was certainly a moment where Tom Cruise is reminding people that he's Tom Cruise, that he can do this. Hey, Josh, you know, I, I think also, you know, if you are saying that Jack Nicholson is going so big, the fact that Tom Cruise is holding his own against him in that way, I think is uh, and not in like an over the top type way, but in like a, you know, kind of uh, energy versus energy type way, I think is a really good sign. But like I said, like, I can't think of a performance by Demi Moore that even comes close to this. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what are her most acclaimed performances. And I mean, she was a, a huge star in the 90s as well. But um, I yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's another one where she just gives a great acting performance, per se, as much as this film. So you, you may be right. And it's a it's a tough character because she can come off as very scolding and self-righteous and you want to still like her right and i think right. i think she she balances that well that this is a character who ultimately she's right about nearly everything but the way that she goes about it is maybe misguided and she needs the balance of tom cruise as this smooth talking character who can get across the things that she's right about as long as he finally starts listening to her yeah i mean it's an interesting conversation because like every time you guys say something like i have like okay what he said i gotta you know like there's so many follow-ups because josh you mentioned all these great character actors that were really really hit it you know noah yeah. wiley's very good jt walsh was one of the best character actors of i think the 80s and 90s you know um so that was that was nice to see him there and um yeah i i uh kevin bacon dave you are right kevin bacon I think it's got to be underrated with what he does as an actor over this over time. Like he really delivers a lot of the time. I feel like yeah, Kevin Bacon rules, and he and he's great. Did in you this. say that, Dave? I, I just threw him in there when you were listening off some of the other actors. So oh, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah, Josh, you were too busy listening to yourself bloviate <laughs> <laughs> while I was listening to Dave. Yeah, that but happened. But Josh, you brought up this whole point about Demi Moore, um, which I think I. I well, I want to give a lot of credit to Aaron Sorkin because one of the things that I really liked about this was every scene is full of conflict and there are conflicts between different characters from the beginning to the end of the scene. The conflicts can change, but each time it ratchets it up. So, you know, going back to that whole idea where like every Hollywood exec was like, well, why aren't they having sex? You know, and it's like the only way I could have seen that working is if they like had sex and then realize it was a mistake and it hurt their working relationship. But I'm also glad that they didn't go that route. That would have been a really, you know, cheap way to just throw a sex scene in there. Right. I think that is the thing. And I was expecting something cheap like that. And there is the part where she shows up at his, his apartment kind of late at night, unexpected. 
And she says, let's go to dinner. And at that moment, I was like, "Uh oh, here it is. I thought they weren't going to do it, but they're finally going to do it. Yeah. And I have to show Demi Moore being sexy because that's all she was known for. Or not all she was known for, but certainly part of her allure. Yeah, exactly. And she's been wearing these these button down military uniforms the whole time. And they're going to have to do that. But no, they go to this restaurant and they have a nice conversation and it's a good character building moment because they're both talking about their personal backgrounds and and then they they go home and that's the end of it. And then the next day they're back to work. And I like that because it was a good scene to get you to learn about the characters, but it also wasn't some sort of cliched about, oh, they're, you know, they're arguing with each other that really hides how attracted they are to each other. And now they're going to sleep. together Yeah. Like I said, if they slept together, the only way I could have justified it is if it added more conflict to their working relationship, which, you know, obviously does happen when people who work together sleep together, which is why I'm self-employed. I just want conflict (laughs) with myself. Oh, (laughs) Josh. What was I going to say? I was too busy making a wacky joke there. Um, I got nothing there, Josh. Dave, you jump in. You say a thing. Oh, all I've got is that I'm on Team Jason here on the uh, the the big Nicholson in the courtroom scene. All right, it's so damn good, man. Like every word of it is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, and the writing of it too is very good. I, one thing that that struck me is that you know Sorkin has become kind of his own cliche. There's all these YouTube compilations of the Sorkinisms, things yeah. that he writes into every screenplay and stuff like that. And it, it can get really tiresome. But I thought this was not that you couldn't recognize Sorkin in the writing here, but it didn't feel like that calcified version of Sorkin that has what he's become over the years as he's become more famous and more well-known. And he's his, he's a draw. Of course, this Sorkin was not the reason that people went to see this movie, whereas later things, he is the reason. Right. It's, uh, you know, compare it to David Mamet, right? You want a lot of the Mamet fans, which I know you're not, want those no. Mamet style dialogue, uh, you know, diatribes and quick hits and everything like that. So yeah, I, uh, I, I like it. Uh, Josh, let's do a little of the alternative casting here. You know, I'm a fan of that. So yes, we mentioned Gene Hackman. Uh, both he and James Woods were uh, considered for Jessup for the uh, Jack Nicholson role. Yeah, I think Hackman could have done a great job. I feel like Woods would have done exactly what I sort of complained about with Nicholson, but in a, in a bad way, he would have probably just hammed it up and, and overdone it. I think Woods at this time could have, you know, he was still like really trying, I think, but I mean, you know, I think maybe him in like the Kiefer Sutherland role would have been an interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if he was the right age for that. I do want to shout out Kiefer Sutherland too, among all the actors, because that character is so vile. He's such an awful Mm. person. And he really gets that across. He's also only in a handful of scenes, but every time he's on screen, you just want to strangle him. So, you know, uh, uh, we mentioned uh, Kevin Pollack. That was going to be Jason Alexander if Seinfeld didn't get picked up. Wow. I could see that. Yeah. done it. Yeah. I think so. And then here's the interesting one, because we were talking about Demi Moore, Josh. Jodie Foster, we know what she crushes everything. She would have been great. Michelle Pfeiffer, I'm not sure at this time, but I think she would have pulled it off. Yeah, I think she could have done it too. Yeah, she's a very good actor. Yeah, she is a very good actor. And then Linda Hamilton, who, you know, can handle the business, but I just don't see her as this character. Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I love Linda Hamilton in the Terminator movies, and she's someone who never really had the broader career after those huge hit movies. I feel like that's like one of the only things that people ever think of her for. So I don't know. It is harder maybe for me to imagine her 
in different kinds of roles. But put her in the Jessup role, maybe that would be good. That would be no, that would be interesting. And I wonder because this is and maybe we'll get to this in the legacy. But, you know, it's a play that has been restaged numerous times since the original. And I, I didn't see this anywhere when I was looking it up. But I wonder if anyone has staged a version of this where you cast a woman in that role. Oh, I yeah. That could be an interesting strategy. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I just don't know if she would be the right woman for it. But. Maybe. I don't know. She might be able to do it now. You know, when she she played the older Sarah Connor in the last Terminator movie, I think she had that that kind of cynicism and, and world weariness that might have worked for this role. <laughs> so, Josh. And Dave, this is uh, this one. This is something I read that bummed me out so much because, like, here I am complimenting Tom Cruise, watching this, and I'm just like, man, he is on. He's just killing this role. It's so awesome. And then I read Tom Cruise based his performance on David Miscavige, the head of Scientology, who probably murdered his wife and who's missing. And now I'll go missing because I mentioned that. Uh, I hope not. But like, uh, I don't want anyone to base anything that I like on David Miscavige as, as a huge Tom Cruise fan and apologist and whatever, like you kind of can't go with any of the stuff he says off camera. It's just, he's, he's Tom Cruise, you know? Yeah. I mean, the whole Scientology thing is definitely disturbing and is something that even, you know, now he's got so much goodwill from people with his more recent work, but he's still all in on that. But the only thing that I will say is that David Miscavige probably not a good person, maybe killed his wife, but probably very charismatic. And yeah, so if you're sure. playing a charismatic character to be yeah. inspired by him, it was not, I, not an unreasonable choice. I would think maybe the Jessup character could have been a Miscavige, you know? Right. So. Of course. Yeah. Of course, Tom Cruise wouldn't see it that way because he doesn't see Miscavige as someone who is malevolent or anything like that. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, cover Right. Exactly. All those things. But Kathy is very charismatic. I mean, that's part of the point of the character is that he has so much charisma that he can sort of wheel and deal and he can get these uh, opposing counsel prosecutors and everything to make deals for his clients so that he doesn't ever have to go to trial. But when they do go to trial, he's obviously good at commanding a courtroom's attention. And especially in comparison to Demi Moore's character, who, again, her whole character is that she knows a lot, but she's clumsy when getting it across. And she is always, whenever she speaks in court, it's always a bad moment. They needed a trial lawyer, not, you know, uh, a whatever internal affairs person. Right, right. And so he has all that charisma. That's, That's an essential part of his character. So- I don't know. I'm trying to give him some credit here. <laughs> well, no, I said it's a great performance. And the other thing yeah. is like, we talked about the humor, like he nails those like throwaway comedy, you know, just lines and everything that are like so effortless that that's what makes them work, you know? Yes. Yeah, he does. And that's a Sorkin thing too. A lot of those, those throwaway lines or callbacks to things or whatever, when or someone makes a joke and then they, they sort of lampshade the joke that they've just made. And right. it, Cruz is good at, at delivering all of that stuff. So I, are there any other, I feel like we've gone through the performances. Is there anything yeah. else that no, we No, I think out? we did too. I did want to mention something because you talked about the ending. You know, there was a script uh, before Rob Reiner came on, uh, of course, commissioned by the wonderful executives of Hollywood, Josh, uh, where the they win the case and then, um, and then Tom Cruise asks out Demi Moore 
So think of how that ending would have gone. And then, you know, to the Did she co- salute him when he asked? No, <laughs> no. She says, uh, make sure you wear matching socks. So that's the callback oh, there. Oh, so yeah. Rob Reiner goes uh, instead. Rob Reiner said, you know, throw out this draft. We're going to we're going to do it a different way. So, yeah. Smart, smart choice from Rob Reiner. That's why he's the favorite director of awesome. Movies. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I have nothing else, Josh. I, I'm ready to rate it if you are. Yeah, should we rate this out of, uh, I, I don't know, I was going to say something dark like we often have, but... Uh, Rag soaked in socks. poison or whatever? Yeah, which it wasn't. I think yeah, Dave, you can't there. prove it was soaked in poison. Yeah. How about, um, uh, uh, what do you want to do, five pairs of matching socks? Sure, why not? Josh, I'm, uh, I'm right between three and a half and four pairs of matching socks, so I don't know if there are seven or eight socks here, but... Um, I guess I'm going to go three and a half pairs of matching socks, seven socks altogether for me. All right. I'm going to give it three and a half too. I know I was complaining about certain aspects of it, but it is very entertaining. It is the kind of corny ass Hollywood movie that you just get swept up in. And so I enjoyed it. I'll give it three and a half. Dave, well, how would you rate it? I was also between three and a half and four, but I'm going to four. I mean, it's just, it's such an all timer of a scene at the end there. It just brings it up a little oh, bit. Oh, that scene's five. That scene's five. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of A Few Good Men. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1992, we have been talking about Rob Reiner's A Few Good Men, the favorite movie of a lot of our listeners, apparently, or one of the favorites from 1992 of a lot of our listeners. So hopefully we've captured some of what people enjoy about this film. Josh, I have one more fun fact, and I saved the okay. most fun fact for this. The funnest This fact? moment. The, is it the funnest? I guess so. No, You're, no, it's not. It's the most fun. Yeah. yeah. So, Josh, after seeing the play on Broadway, the man who wanted to play Jessup, the Jack Nicholson character, was none other than Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> All right. I would just love to hear him say, I'll rip out your eyeballs and piss in your dead skull, sir. Yeah. I I recently in uh, Jason, as you mentioned, all the ridiculous movies that I watched for various articles had to review a straight to VOD movie, which is sadly what Richard Dreyfuss is doing these days with him as like a like a mob boss on the run and did not work. No, did not work. No. Uh, I don't think he could play that character. Until you've enjoyed the pleasure of getting a blowjob from a superior officer, you, sir, have not lived. Yeah, so probably a good call to cast Jack Nicholson in that role instead. But I feel like that's that's maybe a segue to mention something of the legacy here, which is that this is a play. It ran on Broadway for, I think, like 400 plus performances. And so it's been revived multiple times. And I was interested to see who else had appeared in it. So some of the people who've played Caffey, the Tom Cruise role, include uh, Tom Hulse, who was the original yeah. star on Broadway. Amadeus. Michael, right. Great, great actor. Michael O'Keefe, who we talked about mm-hmm. as the, who was the star of Caddyshack. Uh, later on, Rob Lowe and uh, Jensen Ackles from Supernatural. I mean, in a more recent production. Well, Josh, did you know that they are uh, doing this as like a live TV special? They're doing the like a, a Few Good Men live, like, you know, how they do all these plays live on TV now? Yeah, I think that I was reading there that maybe that was supposed to happen and it may not happen, but that is, I 
it seems likely that they'll get around to it, even if it's been on hold for a They should time. do it. And, you know, Sorkin, I kind I really like the child of the Chicago seven. We know what a big writer he is. Social network. Everyone loves uh, Moneyball, Charlie Wilson's war. And uh, I'm going to go sports night as the underrated Sorkin piece of the day. Yeah, I, I know people love sports night. That was not I may have seen one or two episodes, but that wasn't one that I ever got into. So I just want to circle back. I have this list here. Other oh, people, please do. Sorry, uh, Josh. No, that's okay. Other other people who played Jessup, I, I you know these are the two roles that I think attract the biggest names here. So Stephen Lang was the original Jessup, and uh, he's perfect for that. I feel like you know people know him mainly, I guess, like from Avatar now yeah. or Don't Breathe, but he he has that same kind of presence. Ron Perlman mm-hmm. and Lou Diamond Phillips. Yeah. An interesting choice it, there. You know what? I, it's so it's so funny because I noticed there were like all these spider webs. Like this would be a totally different episode of piecing it together, but how you piece together all these actors and directors who work together. And you think of like Lou Diamond Phillips and then Kiefer Sutherland from like 24 and Rob Lowe and Demi Moore and all that stuff. And Kiefer, and they're all like Brad Packers and they all work with Rob Reiner, um, you know, so many times. It, it's It's just an interesting web that they've kind of concocted here. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would be curious, I mean, if they do that live TV version, I think when they were at first going to do it, Alec Baldwin was supposed to play Jessup and he seems like he would fit in that role. Uh, one thing someone mentioned on Letterboxd is that if they do a revival of this, the person who should play Jessup is Tom Cruise. Yeah. Or Kevin Bacon. That would be I think both of those would be interesting. And so I think gonna... Kiefer Sutherland could do it now, too. They're all see. They're all so great. You know who could not do it is either of those guys who played the Marines. <laughs> there, you, there you go. There it is, Josh. So, um, but yeah, there's a lot of great options. So if they do, if they do put on that live TV production, or if it gets revived on Broadway, that could happen too. I mean, Sorkin as a playwright has had a lot of success recently with his version of To Kill a Mockingbird, that was a big hit on Broadway. So I could absolutely see some Broadway theater deciding to revive this. Josh, I know we talked about it in season one, but I feel like North really wasn't the end of Rob Reiner because mm-hmm. he did do the American president after that. And he had the bucket list in the late, you know, 2007. And now he's got spinal tap two in development. So maybe we're getting the Rob Reiner comeback we all deserve. Maybe. Yes. Of course, one of our first ever episodes really was on Rob Reiner's North. And it is fascinating to see that he made a few good men and then North was his next film. And then it was like, uh oh, and he ran right back to political drama written by Aaron Sorkin to direct the American president. So uh, trying to correct there. But, but everyone, everyone, is, everyone says North is what killed him, but it's really everything after the American president that got right. him. Right. Yeah. The American president was very popular. And as you said, he did make the bucket list then in, in 2006 or seven. And, and that was a big hit, reunited him with Jack Nicholson. Um, so, yeah, but certainly in his more recent career, he's made a lot of smaller films, but he still works and he still clearly does what he wants to do. He made that LBJ biopic with Woody Harrelson and his last film that he directed was in 2017, a movie called Shock and Awe, which was about the journalists investigating the reports of weapons of mass destruction in, in Iraq. And so clearly his his kind of political interests, which he's very well known for, have aligned with these films that he's made, even if the films themselves haven't been all that successful or acclaimed, he's still getting to do what he's interested Did in. Did you see either of those movies, Josh? I, I did not. Um, the last Rob Reiner movie I saw, and he's guy looking through his, his filmography, there were several in the last 
uh, 15 years or so that I had not even heard of. But I think the, the more the last recent Rob Reiner film I saw was a movie called Flipped from 2010, which is like a teen romantic comedy that is just absolutely dreadful. Mm. So I would not recommend seeing that film. It's just impossible for me not to say, you know, this is Spinal Tap, the short thing, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, and A Few Good Men. That was as good as a run as anyone has ever had to start out a career as a director. Absolutely. And if that's all that there was, we would still talk about him as one of the great directors of the 80s and 90s and and even of all time. So if he just does garbage for the rest of his career still, I think he's earned it to do what he, what he wants to do. So, um, but some of it really is garbage. So we don't have to watch it. We can just respect him from afar and watch those older films again, maybe. Fair. Jason, you you kind of ran through some of Sorkin's credits, which of course are are extensive. And I think one of the things about Sorkin is that at least movie-wise, he is great when he works with a director who has real command of the material, whether that's Rob Reiner here and on The American President or David Fincher on The Social Network, Mike Nichols, who directed Charlie Wilson's War, Danny Boyle directed Steve Jobs, Bennett Miller, who directed Moneyball. And when he directs his own stuff, which it seems like is now the only thing that he wants to do, he is far too indulgent of his own writing. Yeah, I didn't see being the Ricardos, but um, it really just kind of fell flat. It it sounded like. Yeah, being the Ricardos is definitely not very good. And the thing is, is I don't necessarily even dislike the other films. I I, I kind of like Molly's Game. I feel like it has some really entertaining stuff and Jessica Chastain is great in it. And one good thing about Molly's Game is I think he tells a story that's not like with the fate of the world at stake, which is what he seems to want to put in so many of his films and and TV series now. And so it's slightly less self-righteous. Um, and I kind of enjoyed, well, you were saying the trial of the Chicago 7 that you liked. And there's another courtroom drama that is super, super hokey. And I thought it was fun to watch for what it was, even though, of course, it's probably not super historically accurate. But he gets those rousing courtroom moments. Yeah. And uh, a really good performance from Sasha Barrick Cohen. Yeah. A lot of really good actors in that film as well. And I mean, just, just like here, if you recruit people like that, you're going to get a good film regardless sports night so jason did you watch all of sports night were you a whole fan of it yeah my brother was a huge fan and we had it on dvd so i think i've watched it all i'd like to go back and rewatch it um you know when they had robert guillaume it was awesome and then i think he had like a stroke and it kind of you know that when the cast the dynamic changes a little it's tougher to hold on to that sometimes so right yeah i never did i think like i said i was a huge fan of the west wing and so and i've never watched that and I, I feel like that's something that maybe does not hold up. I have not watched it since it was originally airing, but so much of the like, quote, Sorkinisms and the hokiness of his later work, I feel like originates in that. And of course, it's about the West Wing. It's about the president. It's about things that could not be higher stakes. And I think it offers him a lot of chances for speechifying and for self-importance. But I loved it at the time. And I didn't, for whatever reason, see a few good men, but I did go back and watch a bit of Sports Night and never quite got into it. And then TV wise, I think like in movies, Sorkin just has gotten really into his own brilliance right. and later shows Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which was his show about a Saturday that, Night Live. That, that was a fail right from the start. It was. And the problem was that he treated that like it was the West Wing. Right. And it was so self-important and so serious. And then but when he made the newsroom, which was about 
a cable news channel, which is like, okay, this is a more serious setting, but it was also just so dreadfully self-righteous. But people love a lot of that. There's a there's yeah. a speech uh, from the first episode of the newsroom that Jeff Daniels gives, which I remember watching it and I, I was reviewing this before it premiered. And that was a moment where I'm like, oh God, this is just, this is dreadful. This is just Sorkin so far up his own ass. But that speech has become like an iconic thing that people quote from and they post clips from it all the time. And it's just, it's so bad. But whatever, you know, Sorkin has something that just draws people in. Yeah, people really do like that. You know, if I was going to say a movie that you might not think of, I really did like Charlie Wilson's War, the uh, the one with Tom Hanks. That's kind of an underrated piece. I like that a lot, too. And I don't know if we mentioned that when we were talking about Mike Nichols on our episode about The Graduate, but I, I agree that is kind of an underrated film and it's a good combination. Again, I think one of the things about Sorkin is that he should work with directors who can elevate his material or who can frame it in a way that is more creative and more entertaining. And I don't know if he has any plans to write movies for other directors anymore, but I wish that he would. All right, Josh, you get to pick one movie to recommend if uh, you want to see Jack Nicholson at his best. What are you picking? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I hadn't looked at that, but maybe One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, that's, that that's, seems like an obvious choice. Yeah, probably what I'm picking. If I'm going for something a little under the radar, I think I mentioned it before. He's so good in five easy pieces. Like That's an amazing performance right there. That is. And um, I was just noting down kind of later things in terms of, of the legacy of this. So I'll, I'll also recommend About Schmidt. That is one of my absolute Agreed. favorites. I agree. That's a great one. Yeah. yeah, that is absolutely a great film. And so this was actually like looking at this in terms of the legacy, you know, this was Nicholson at sort of the height of his fame and everything, but he didn't make that many more movies after this. He was more selective and his career kind of came to an end in 2010 with the final movie he made, which was How Do You Know, a James L. Brooks film that was a disaster at the time, but I think has gained a bit of a following since then. So, Well, he and James L. Brooks, you know, as good as it gets. And was James L. Brooks Terms of Endearment also? I think so, yeah. yeah. So, right, and that was a big thing for them to reunite, but it, I think it had some problems behind the scenes and it just, it died at the box office and it got a lot of bad reviews, but I think it's been reassessed to some degree. I haven't seen it. And, and and he just kind of like he's retired. He's kind of yes. done his own thing, like, and he slowly went away, you know. And and he, you know, enjoy the Lakers, bro. Yeah, I mean, there there were rumors. There was a big rumor a few years ago that he was going to star in the remake of the German film Tony Erdman, right? That I think was supposed to be alongside Kristen Wiig, and that was like even announced that it seemed like maybe he had actually signed on to it, but then the whole movie fell apart. And I don't know if that was sort of a last hurrah for him where he thought, well, this didn't work out, so let's just call it a day. But I think he has specifically said that he's retired. And and right, he deserves it. I feel like as we say, we like we said about Gene Hackman, like no one can complain that, that these people didn't give us enough great work. Yeah. Meanwhile, Tom Cruise is the last real movie star. Yeah. He's got two more missions. I mean, yeah, we love Maverick. I, I you know, I, it's still my favorite movie of this year at the time of recording. Me here too. In September. Josh, two more Mission Impossible movies, the SpaceX movie, and Dave will be happy to know a possible sequel to Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow uh, sequel, perhaps. Edge of Tomorrow is really good. I, I agree. I'm a fan yep. of it as well. Yeah. 
So, Jason, if you had to recommend one Tom Cruise movie, what would that be? I, I, you know what I thought is like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pick one of the big ones that we all know. I'm gonna say Collateral. I love him in Collateral. That movie is such a banger, dude. That and throwing Tropic Thunder for the uh, Les Grossman <laughs> right there to see both sides. Hell yeah! Yeah, I'm with you on Collateral. That was one that I noted down and that I might have picked out as well. Um, I'm not as much a fan of. I like Tropic Thunder, but I feel like that's a moment. That particular performance is like Tom Cruise. The whole time, like, look, I'm funny. Look, I he is so he is he is in that though. He's so funny in that. I mean, look, if we're gonna pick one, I'd probably say Jerry Maguire. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a famous one. Um, I I recently for that that article that I was talking about watched The Color of Money, which I had never seen before, and I thought Great it was movie. so fantastic. And it's yeah. kind of an underrated Martin Scorsese film as well. So um, I might uh, I might recommend that one. And I love Interview with the Vampire, which was a movie where people thought that Cruz was maybe miscast and he totally proved them all wrong. So um, I, I think that's one that people don't always think of first. Well, I, I really enjoy that film. He proved everyone wrong again this year with the release of Top Gun Maverick, right? So he, yeah. he still proved that you can have a, a blockbuster. Josh, I wanted to tell you Demi Moore and uh, Kevin Bacon are finding real success now in this kind of limited series, uh, especially like literally as we speak, I think Demi Moore just signed on for the, New season of uh, the Ryan Murphy show uh, where it's uh, they cat fight each other and everyone's fighting. What's that one called, Josh? Feud. Yeah. Feud. Yeah. Cat fight. And she's playing Ann Woodward, a socialite who was known uh, or rumored to have murdered her husband. And uh, she feuds with Truman Capote. Kevin Bacon. He's in uh, two of them coming up. The, the First Lady and Rabbit Hole. And. And uh, it's one good to see Demi Moore back on the scene. And two, I think, you know, Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon and Kiefer Sutherland have led, left lasting legacies from being teen actors all the way through now. Yeah, I mean, Kevin Bacon has an extensive list of credits that we could go through. And of course, that's why we did on Footloose. Yes. And, you know, why he's the subject of that uh, little game that people play because he's so connected to so many people. And Demi Moore, you know, she was a huge, huge star at this time. And we did our episode on Basic Instinct, and she was one of the, the fixtures of these kind of erotic thrillers that were very big in the 90s. I mean, Indecent Proposal and Disclosure and The Scarlet Letter, which was a famous failure that she starred in. And then Striptease was also a famous failure. And then, you know, you mentioned G.I. Jane, but she was she was given these big, big star vehicles. And it was only until like several of them failed, I think, that she had to sh sort of shift into smaller films or to supporting roles. But, you know, she's someone who, because she was an attractive woman who would pose nude or whatever, she got a lot of unfair criticism of her acting and of her sort of star persona. And maybe now that we're far removed from that, we can better appreciate her talents. I mean, I don't know if that's true because like, Yes, she did a lot of those, but a lot of those are bad movies. So, like, I mean, if you look up her filmography, there's, like, do the movies she made, you know, do they reach the level of, like, what she did in this? Like, none of them really hold up, right? As that, yeah, that's probably true. I haven't seen, honestly, of those that I just named. Um, I've seen Indecent Proposal um, not that long ago, which, which people like, but I think is yeah. not good. And I remember seeing G.I. Jane in the theater, and I don't remember if I liked it. I, I, I did like experience. it when I saw yeah. it. Um, but, you know, I still I still like her more in that kind of Brat Pack phase that, you know, all these guys kind of fit into Sutherland where you're talking about a One Crazy Summer and About Last Night and uh, St. Elmo's Fire. I think that that's my most fun uh, 
Demi Moore face, Josh. Yeah, although I think she's gotten to, at this point, a comfortable position where she can play those supporting roles and come in and be the seasoned veteran and, and, and do a good job with it. Yeah, I actually think this should probably be the boom time for her. Like, this is where we should see her at her best, where, you know, she can really showcase herself as an actor. Yeah, I, I hope so. So uh, anything well, else? One, on one, one, we got it. I just wanted to say J.T. Walsh, you know, was such a great character yeah. actor. And, um, you know, he's the bad guy in Breakdown and, and very uh, menacing in that. And, you know, j- just he's worth noting, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like we said, there's there's just a stacked cast of amazing character actors. And he is he is known for being like the character actor, especially of that period. I yeah. People think of character actors. When Jack Nicholson won his third Oscar, he dedicated it to JT Walsh. So that's, oh, that's pretty lovely. cool. So yeah. they were also in Hoffa together in 92. I have a question for both of you guys, because I like this genre and I feel like it's a tough genre to pull off. Any favorite, Josh and Dave, uh, courtroom courtroom dramas? I don't know. I mean, I, I would have had to look this up. So um, not a whole lot that comes to mind. I mean, I think back to like Inherit the Wind or something like that, which I watched in, in school. Yeah, uh, honestly, that's on my list. That's probably my favorite one because Spencer Tracy is just incredible in that film. Yeah, I, I will say, and this came up in another recent episode, that I, I do quite enjoy the courtroom scenes in Wild Things. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's a good, you know, we talk about Wild Things a few times. You know, I mean, you mentioned, you know, stuff like To Kill a Mockingbird, and I've talked about Kramer yes. versus Kramer on um, on here before. My old acting teacher, uh, Joseph Bernard, was in Judgment at Nuremberg, and that's a classic. But um, how about Primal Fear? I, I was actually thinking that. That was going to be the one I was going to mention, Primal Fear, or I was going to go to TV and go with Better Call Saul, but... Primal Fear is great. I haven't seen it since it came out, though. Yeah, I think I saw that a while ago, and I don't remember a whole lot about it, but it has like a crazy twist. That's all I remember. Yeah, no, it's it's very good. I liked it when I saw it, so. Yeah, yeah. And and Sorkin, like, you, you know, he wrote To Kill a Mockingbird and Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, Malice is another one that we didn't mention that he wrote, which is, speaking of Alec Baldwin, his super right. hammy performance in that great line where someone says, you know, are you playing God? And he says, I am God. Right. <laughs> you know, you got to give give that actor that line. Yeah, right. You can't, go, you can't go small with a line like that. No. no, no. So that is A Few Good Men, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out online and on social media. Oh, boy. So many places to check us out. I'm still Jason Harris Comedy or J. Harris Comedy on all the socials. Don't forget my new projects, Eat This Comedy and The Trivia Party, which are both on Instagram right now. My website, Go For Jason, is stuck in Gitmo. Uh, sadly, <laughs> uh, awesome movie year.com still has an RSS feed. So that's nice. Awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome movie pod on Twitter. Go for Jason on Letterboxd. I am at Josh Bell hates everything.com, which is probably also something that should be locked away at Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at signal bleed on Twitter and on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And uh, depending on when you're listening to this, we may have different things coming up next. So we'll just say tune in for something next time. Yeah. And thank you guys for all the suggestions. And uh, we were glad to cover this one. Yeah, we really do appreciate it. We got so many great suggestions. People love films from 92. So we're glad to do one more of those before we close out this season. So thank you to everyone. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year.
make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.